All right, so we got Stephen Vanyo. I'm sorry, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Vanyo is correct. Yes, if you want to All say right, a little cool. fancy, I'm getting we better go, at this. We could go Vanyo, but yeah, it's Vanyo. Vanyo yeah. If this, law, if this law thing doesn't work out, I'm going to start the greatest series of party buses of all time, Vanyo's Vanyo. So hey, I, I like that's that. I that's cool. <laughs> that's uh, I'd, I'd buy into that. <laughs> uh, Mario's not going to be in today. He had something last minute come up, so unfortunately it's just me. Um, but um, Steven's from the law offices of Lloyd Remick. Yeah. All right. So you are a... You specific, you like basically you just kind of do sports or you do all entertainment law. So the way that we like to say is that we do any kind of representation of anybody with a God given talent. So that's sports, okay. that's podcast, that's social media, that's TikTok, that's music, that's movies. Uh, the way that our firm got founded uh, around a long time ago in the 1960s, uh, the founder of the firm, Lloyd Remick, was sitting in his you know corporate legal job. And, you know, he's working for like all these different insurance companies and things of that nature. He had just gotten out of the army. And one day, in his words, a hippie with long hair walked in and he said, uh, you know, I need help with this contract. So from there, you know, he noticed that the contract for the hippie, there was somebody taking advantage of him. And from there, mm -hmm. Lloyd just started representing God-given talents. Um, from there, he went on to different things in theater, in boxing, in football, in music. Um, he's most well known for being the the manager of the great jazz legend Grover Washington Jr., who wrote the song "Just mm -hmm. the Two of Us" with Bill Withers. Mm -hmm. So from there, we've grown and expanded. We have an NFL agency side of things. We have a music law side of things. Music, I think, is our bread and butter. Both Lloyd and I have a, a a music background, but the thing is that in today's world, where everybody's kind of becoming a content creator themselves, that there's a greater amount of people that need legal representation more than ever, especially in the area of like what we in the industry call click wrap agreements. So those accept terms and conditions, those accept things. Whenever somebody accepts an affiliate partnership or something like that, they're agreeing to a much larger grant of rights than I think anybody even intended, including the uh, the people sometimes at the brand themselves. So mm -hmm. what we do at our practice is we have a strong music bent, we do film, we do movies, we do TV, but really like it's just anybody with a God-given talent that we provide legal advice, corporate formation, uh, intellectual property registration and um, advising, you know, with things with, like with copyright and trademark. Uh, we don't mm -hmm. typically do patents because, you know, although I think we we have a lot of people that invent great concepts in the entertainment world, patents more for like science and tech and things of that nature. So mm -hmm. what we really do is that we help advise and we help protect um, entertainers, celebrities, anybody in that sort of field, just because, you know, that's the way that People need things done nowadays. People can hyper specialize in niche. Um, and there are a lot of attorneys and entertainment lawyers that you'll see, you know, in New York, in LA, in Nashville, in Miami that have a hyper specificity and they're really good at their niche. However, being in Philadelphia, the market here is such that, you know, people of all different kinds of entertainers need here because for whatever reason, and I don't know why this is, people don't flock to Philadelphia, which I think is a great center for um, culture, art, food. Um, anything you can imagine. I mean, our art museum's great. Our music scene's great. Uh, our film industry is really coming up. Uh, our television industry is kind of coming up now that M. Night Shyamalan's kind of back filming a lot of his Apple TV stuff and around the surrounding area. There are other TV productions that if they're not filming in Philadelphia themselves, they're using Philadelphia's location like Abbott Elementary. So hopefully, you know, with, with the Eagles Super Bowl appearance, Abbott Elementary, Little Uzi Vert having like the number one song in the world, you know, for a time, people are going to start to realize fully 
if they already haven't known that Philadelphia is a great place to be if you want to be in the entertainment world. That's good to know. Um, Philadelphia, uh, that's where they do launch music festival, right? They do launch music. We just had uh, the the play music conference wrap up here this this past weekend. Launch, mm-hmm. I think, is actually more in the Harrisburg and the Lancaster area. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Philadelphia does have a lot of conferences and things of that nature where people get together and um, they kind of meet and they discuss, you know, the worldly industry. We have a couple of music festivals here. MIA, Made in America is the big one mm-hmm. uh, that Jay-Z runs. We have the 4th of July celebration, which our office helped do a lot of the legal work for when it was first starting. Um, so that's like where they take over the big parkway right in our city, right where the art museum. So if you ever watched the Rocky movies, the Rocky mm-hmm. Museum's there. And then we have this long parkway where Made in America festival is right in front of um so yeah philadelphia really again as i'm saying is in the in the in at least in my view in the past 10 15 years has really shown itself to be like i said like an entertainment hub but yeah music our music scene we have a good blending of you know we have a really rich history and like do-it-yourself house shows which is how i kind of got my start when i was younger so basically what would happen is there's these tight little row homes they're usually like 800 to a thousand square feet and the basements are unfinished. It's dusty. Yep. When people flush a toilet <laughs> in between bands, you can hear them. So people get out like, yep, a little yep. cheer. And uh, <laughs> so that's how I got started. Um, I was playing in like emo bands and punk bands and pop punk bands and even a hip hop cover banded too. And we would go to houses with um, names like The Nest or The Mile High House or uh, Lavender nice. Town off the Pokemon mm-hmm. thing. And these houses would last for like a year, maybe two years before the people that let out. And these people were very gracious. You would pay yeah. five bucks at the door. You would go get to see a band uh, from anywhere. I once opened from a band that was on tour uh, from Sweden, of all places. They were just doing houses nice. all around the country. And so we have that kind of scene. We have our more mid-sized venues. Those like 100 to 150 cap. You go up, Live Nation is really taking an investment in Philadelphia. They own mm-hmm. like four or five different like mid to larger scale venues. Um, and there's, uh, if you want to see anything, if you want to see like electronic, our club scene is great. We have like Noto, uh, which attracts a lot of the top electronic artists. Uh, I don't think like Fred again has played there, but I know, um, uh, you know, a lot of the different top electronic acts play there. So it's not like a scene that's like really is dominated by like, one genre or another i'd have to say like punk and hip-hop are the two or the two big genres at least that we deal with on a regular basis um because you know we also have that spillover from southern new jersey and like even delaware Mm -hmm. a little bit too yeah so it's just like a really good place to be if you want to be in the mix that's cool man yeah milwaukee also does uh well they did do basement shows quite a bit uh there was a venue called mosh house Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had they would always have bands come through and it was like your typical basement you know just like you said you know there was it was unfinished you flush the toilet you could hear it you know and then <laughs> gear downstairs into the basement was always a fun time because it was never like a perfect it's never a perfect uh angle to be able to get a, like a huge cab down you know it's always like you kind of had to pick it up like you're moving a couch type thing mm-hmm. and then get it down somehow uh, but yeah, dude, the, those were kind of like, it was like the backbone of the industry. You know, it was like, if you went to a basement show and you survived the basement show, then you, you were good to go. You know, I, I'm still convinced that's why I didn't get COVID, you know, it's because I used to, <laughs> yeah, you tested your immune system early and you're just yeah, like, let me exactly. just like put it through the training regimen of like dealing with 
not only the stale air that are in these basements, but just right. everybody with any possible disease possible just breathing <laughs> in the same air. I think exactly. your listeners can't see this, but I probably still have a bump on the top of my head from all the times I hit my head on low-hanging ceilings trying to carry, as you said, like a bass cap down or a drummer. Yeah, so yeah. I'm a drummer by trade, so like the okay. most I think I would get my bandmates to carry was maybe like a single hi-hat stand or they're like, yeah, everybody yeah, left yeah. to take the drums, the drum throne or, you know, the people, <laughs> us drummers <laughs> the, call the, the easy throne, stuff. Other people yeah. call it the stool. Everybody else. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I got the, you know, the 40-pound bass drum that I had to lug down or the, you know, <laughs> the Ampeg, like, four by 12 bass cab that we had to bring did, down all these places did the so. vocalist help at all or oh did he just well the good around? news is i always played in bay i only played in two bands where the vocalist didn't also play an instrument so they oh, always okay. got to deal with their own gear and you know <laughs> That's oh cool. man my my the power at this house is terrible i can't get my yeah. tube screamer to work and yeah. i'm like all right talk to me when i gotta figure out how to fit like a five-piece drum set in a in the world's tiniest coop you know right and exactly find parking in the city so yeah, you know, yeah, I love, yeah, I love, I uh, love, I love talking about musicians and mu- musician stereotypes. You know, vocalists, oh for sure, players, same. Guitars, yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not so, I'm not so uh, uh, arrogant to think that like not everybody should help. And I've been lucky enough that I've been played in a, a lot of different bands where people, you know, yeah, I joke around a lot, but uh, people, yeah. everybody, everybody helped out with the loading and the unloading. That of course, you know, <laughs> even the girlfriends helped. That was always a great yep, part. There you, you know, go. That's all that matters. Yeah, carrying the gear, <laughs> running the merch table, you know, that's off like some little like folding card table. And, you know, yeah, like, I don't know, stinky Pete's up here and he's and he's talking my <laughs> ear off about, you know, the Deftones. And uh, I'm and I'm like, all right, well, I got to I got to finish the set. I'll be up in a second to check on you. Though. Yeah. But, yeah, it's been good. It's been good. That's cool, man. So you grew up in the uh, Pennsylvania local scene, I guess. When you grew up, was it what genres were specific to it? Like, was it hardcore? I mean, I know New Jersey had a pretty big punk scene mm-hmm. at one point, right? Yeah. So I grew up in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Quakertown, Pennsylvania is a very interesting place. It's about an hour from Philadelphia. Um, and while it has a music scene, it has, you know, a lot of local bands coming up. Um for a time it was really heavily in the pop punk the emo and the hardcore space so we had a little tiny church that people would run out uh title fight tiger's jaw the wonder years um man overboard they would all come play this church or they would go like 20 minutes south of lansdale where the wonder years are from so at least in the quakertown area it was very like pop punky emo-y type stuff we would have hip-hop we would have um folk and ironically enough quaker town is in this area where there is like a a little bit of a country tilt and acoustic tilt so you know the bars would always have like a a solo singer songwriter type but um quaker town itself has just grown and we have like a larger amphitheater outdoor amphitheater now that people bring out lawn chairs and you'll get like the hooters or pat benatar other 80s legacy acts that'll come there Mm -hmm. now so from the time i've grown up to now quaker town itself is really invested in the music scene um and then it's and then of course in the Philadelphia area, like you have the rousing, like that, you know, 2010, 2011, like DIY emo stuff, like modern baseball, Marietta, um, yep. uh, you know, girl pool moved to Philly after kind of seeing, uh, how well it had gone. So Philadelphia, like I said, like, yeah, it, it tends to be dominated by like that punk, like emo indie hardcore, just because it is kind of like, you know. I, I know I know of no other better way to describe it than like grimy or New York. Like, you know, the yeah. streets unfortunately <laughs> still has some litter on them. 
you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the ceilings are still dripping. You know, you got to lug, as you said, like all your gear down these like tight, narrow staircases in these row homes or up tight, narrow staircases to get to a lot of the venues. So it kind of has created like a a work hard mentality. Like I think like in any city you see, like the culture of the people there kind of blends itself into the music scene. So like in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. like as you kind of said, I assume that it's it's kind of colder. It's not as bright. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting a lot of like poppy, cheery songs coming out of Milwaukee artists. Like, correct <laughs> me if I'm yeah. wrong on that. No, you're right. Honestly. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a few bands uh, out there. The Keystones. Uh, they're local out of Milwaukee, solid, like a uh, poppy, you know, uh, type of band. And then a band that I used to manage dream house. Uh, they've been kind of more or less on hiatus because, uh, the lead singer and the guitarist, um, are married and they got a kid, they got, you know, they got married in that time. So, but anyway, those, I mean, for the most part, those are the only two bigger ones in terms of the local scene, um, that are poppy. Everything else is pretty much like, you know, hardcore or metal. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. which is cool. I mean, I, I dig it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Maybe it is because it's cold and depressing here. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's like, like you said, like people just kind of artists, especially, you know, when I was playing and the things you see, you take inspiration from the things around you. So if it's yeah. rainy and cold and gloomy, like it is in Britain, like how do you think Black Sabbath got started? Cause it's dark and rainy That's and gloomy yeah. and everything yeah, like yeah, that yeah. in LA, you know, Katy Perry couldn't make California girls about, you know, anywhere else just because it is like right. maybe Hawaii, but Hawaii, gir- Hawaii girls doesn't kind of line up with that same melody. So that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just yeah. like with any artist, you take inspiration from what's around you, what you're listening to. So sure. when you're outside and you're doing things like, you know, and kind of in my legal practice and the stuff that I do, um, I take the same ethos of the city. It's like you're not here to show off. You're not here to you know, who's wearing the biggest chain, who's wearing whatever you're here to put it, you're here to put in the work. And if you don't put in the work, then you're going to get left behind because, you mm-hmm. know, you do have to fight from you're from Philadelphia, you're not in New York, you're not in LA, you're not that you don't get that presumption of like, things are going well, like with rappers, we see all the time, it's, you know, if you compare a Philadelphia rapper versus a New York rapper, a New York rapper has a lot more leeway because they get to say they're from New York, whereas in Philly, like, we really, really, really have to fight for it. And only like yeah. years, years down the line that like people recognize like how great some of the talent out of the city is. Like it's a little Lucy Bird a little bit to get on. There's a new wave with Too Rare and Zasosa and um, even a little bit of G12 Za or G1000 or some of these other guys. And it's going to take a little bit to come up to the city. But if you put out a, mm-hmm. a, a drill song from New York and you get the right video behind it, it could go crazy. I mean, yeah. Ice Spice. I, I think Ice Spice is one of the greatest examples of like, that blending of that New York and that New York attitude is something that'll always be popular. But for Philadelphia, like you really have to put yourself out there. And unfortunately there are a lot of times where we lose talent a bit too early and they go move mm-hmm. out to New York or LA or Miami or Atlanta, just because they think that it's tough to make it out of here. I think that the people that really stick around and really invest in the scene um, often are the ones that are most benefited by it because it is such like, a great place to collaborate like even you hear like like uzi like he takes influences from the punk scene you know especially like with mm-hmm. some of his earlier work so i think it's just that the city it is the city of brotherly love and we all kind of come together and we all kind of hopefully support each other in a way like i don't think it's much of a dog eat dog competition world like it can be in la or new york sure yeah do you think part of that is is a little bit of resources too i mean i think a lot of people kind of look at 
LA, New York, you know, uh, Miami or Atlanta, you know, as an, uh, an area with more resources for them to be able to take advantage of, to be able to kind of catapult them to where they want to be. Is that yeah. a kind of a thought you think? I think the resources in terms of the networking is there just because yeah. we have decided as a society that these cities are the place that we're going to put our entertainment business. But everything's on social media now. You can network exactly. that way. Yeah. I mean, look at us right now. We're recording this podcast like all the way across <laughs> the world on a, on a you know, right. Sunday afternoon. And yeah. we would have normally never been able to do that. I would have had to go fly to your studio and I would mm -hmm. have to sit there with you and do that. But now like you can make a song without ever meeting the other person. You know, exactly. when I was in a band, we were trying to put out splits with bands and I like had never, I would, I had never met them. I'd never planned to meet them. I was just like, your yeah. music is good. We're good there. And it is always kind of funny though, the people you talk with and see how they go. Like my funniest story is that, um, there was a band called Remo drive. I think they're still around and they somehow just on the internet through one of the Facebook groups, they and us get signed to the same label that's run by um, the buddy of theirs. It's called Rolling Green Records. And I'm talking about putting out a split with them, you know, all of this, all that. And then as my music career kind of, at least the playing aspect of it kind of comes to a close, I look up one day and here they are getting interviewed on the needle drop. And I'm like kind of saying to myself, oh my goodness, we made yeah. similar sounding music. They liked it enough that he, you know, we do have a mix and mashed version by Eric, who's the lead singer of that group um of our of our first ever demo and what's the difference between them and us you know we're playing the same type of music we were playing the same type of venues we were in the same time we both had the same level of musicianship in my view uh not trying to brag or anything it, it, it's just what mm -hmm. i thought and yeah. what's the difference why do they get to go to the needle drop and 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 why that and it's just something that yeah. i really upon reflection and you know my boss puts it the best way it says he takes it takes three things to make a superstar talent luck and contacts so to your point like about new york atlanta la the contacts are really there so the contact yeah. part of it is very heavily done and it's kind of like if you have a lot of talent you need a little bit less luck if you don't have a yeah. lot of talent you need a little bit more luck if you don't have right. talent or luck you need a lot more contacts so it's kind of like yeah. you need to get to a certain score to get there and you need all three of those things but if you have like one heavily on other side, it's kind of like one of those video game sliders where like you can dominate in a game if you turn one thing all the way up and you turn a few things down or vice versa. But yeah, as long as exactly. you get there, that's yeah. how you make it. So in the L.A., New York, Atlanta thing, the contacts are crazy. The talent is there just because we had, um, you know, again, as a society decided, like, this is where you need to go if you want to make it. Like if you want to make it in hip hop, you got to go to L.A. or Atlanta, you know, and you mm -hmm. got to go to the studios. You got to do that. Um and then a little bit of luck. So the other example I have, he's not a client of mine, but um, we went to college together, believe it or not. There's a TikTok superstar named Jaleel. Uh, Jaleel okay. is very mm -hmm. famous for doing like backflips on stage. And we went to school together and he's first starting out. And I'm listening to him and I can see some of the raw talent there, the, the, the energy there. And I'm just like, all right, well, we're in Baltimore, Maryland. And Baltimore has a good scene, but not so much for what he's doing. So... I graduate. I just keep in, I keep track of him for a year, and then I see he moves out to LA, and then I see him pop up on random things here, there, and you know, I later listen to an interview with him where he's like, "Yeah, I was homeless for two years. Uh, he was just couch surfing in LA, and you know, Damn. one day, a little bit of luck, he runs into Pharrell. Uh, he runs into you know Adam from No Jumper, and you know, he has the talent. He meets up with a producer named Connie, and uh, Connie and him make this great song." puts a great video to it 
blows up on TikTok. Now he, you know, was attending the Grammys. He was playing on a side stage at Made in America. And all I remember is, you know, him being like a dude in our tiny, you know, college radio station studio. And I made him do a freestyle to flavor in your ear by Craig Mack. Um, So it just kind of shows to me that, yeah, like if you unfortunately like the easiest path is to move to one of those cities and you do have to struggle. Like he was homeless. Like he did have, you know, he did have to worry every day about where his next meal was going to come from. Because if you're going to put in the work, you don't have a ton of time for like a part time job. You can't work like. 40 hours a week or you can you just have to give up and sacrifice other things like social life or sleep or whatever you choose um but moving to those cities made things a little bit easier for him but at the same time like you said on the internet like i don't know how many times i've heard of like a people i'm like where did you get this from they're like oh i found this swedish loop maker on discord and yeah. we just connected and i'm like well how'd you get the beat he's like Oh, I just Venmoed him fifty bucks, and it and it was good to go. And I'm oh, like, God. oh my goodness, you made this hit song for fifty <laughs> bucks? That's wild. Yeah. So, right. I think in terms of like growing your career, you need to be in these certain places just now until we've decided that you know there's enough people and enough things to people start like investing in their own areas and their own scenes. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you just want to make a hit song, you don't need to go to L.A. or New York to do that. You just got to find the right people and the right talent on the Internet. That's fair. Yeah. And get the rights. <laughs> and get the rights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me. What do you mean? What do you mean I can't take this old song and just repurpose it? It's totally my yeah. idea. I wrote the song. No, 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 right. no. Gladys and the Pips <laughs> wrote that song. You just repurposed it. You got to get these yeah. clearances. I, and I mean, right, to your right. point, like, that's one of the things that I think people – unfortunately i've lost a little respect for intellectual property rights mm-hmm. uh you and i have grown up in the in the lime wire torrent era where yeah. we just expect everything to come for free or reduce costs <laughs> um yeah and how dare anybody decide to take things down you know bands will still do bootleg t-shirts of famous logos mm-hmm. like i've seen every band in the world with the jack daniels spoof or the coca-cola spoof oh god yeah yeah and yeah everybody's just risking that you know by law and not to get into like a legal thing to protect your trademark rights you need to protect them you need to do things like cease and desist otherwise you lose it if uh if the united states patent trademark office sees that well here's rampant trademark infringement they don't really care about protecting their brand they're not making sure that the public knows that anytime you see this logo or this name or this slogan um that it's not actually coming from this brand you know if somebody were god forbid make a whiskey you know with their jack daniels whip off and it was terrible and was hurting people well yeah then they're not really protecting the brand uh same with copyright like you said like people are sampling things like crazy and just hoping that it works or they're abusing beat licensing agreements or alternatively they're using intellectual property as a weapon and there's plenty of stories of where um a bedroom artist not terribly knowledgeable about what getting legal rights entails find the track online pays 20 bucks 40 60 80 makes a hit song to it it blows up on tiktok the record label start calling and then you know i don't know like this is just one example but and this i, I believe it was covered in a rolling stone article but then the record label owner goes out from under the person and just outright buys the beat so now the record label is the owner of the beat they can file a cease and desist because he's exceeded the amount of the license. Uh, they can mm-hmm. take it down using the DMCA tools that every website's required by law to have that's uploading user content. Uh, 
and then all that artist progress is stalled because it is all on the internet. And if people can't yeah. find your music, it's super difficult. And yeah, I could, I guess, theoretically live on in leaks of the internet, but then what's the point? Cause you're not making money off those leaks. You're right. Just, right. Yeah. It's, it's a popularity and yeah, make it your marketing out there. Um, but then you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do I give up everything? And do I give up a hundred percent of the publishing or, you know, a hundred percent of the royalties kind of what happened to, you know, uh, juice world with lucid dreams and Sting. Mm-hmm. you know, he released it without stings permission. And, um, they knew about it and then they're in a terrible negotiating place because if lucid dreams gets taken off the internet, other juice world songs don't really get found. Cause a lot of times the first times that people found out about juice world was through lucid dreams. So I think what people need to understand, especially the music industry is like, yeah, the investment may seem a little bit pricey at first, but the penalty down the line is way, way worse. So mm-hmm. everybody's like, well, I'm just playing basements and we get paid in a six pack of past blue ribbon and 40 bucks <laughs> from the door. If we're lucky, yeah, why do I need a contract <laughs> between me and my bandmates about what's going to happen? Cause I'm mm-hmm. like, cause when the song blows up or when you blow up, you don't want to worry about that stuff. You want to have everything right. laid out in the line and everything's all good till the money starts coming in. And when the money starts mm-hmm. coming in, people start claiming things that they never would have claimed before. You know, I wrote this. Yeah. No, you wrote that. I'm the reason we're famous, not you. So the importance of hiring a lawyer early on, well, again, it may seem like a crazy investment because everybody thinks they only need to hire a lawyer when they get that big time record label deal. Mm-hmm. But just making sure or everything's when they're in right. Trouble. Yeah, make sure everything's right from the rip. Uh is super, super important because then again, it's the easiest way to have long-term sustained success. Lawyers can't prevent disputes. Like, you know, people get mad at each other all the time, but what lawyers can do is that they can set the rules of the game early. So everybody knows what the rules are playing under. So that way your bass player doesn't get mad when they don't get all the royalties. Or if they do, you can say, look, this is what we agreed to when we were first starting when the money wasn't there. Um, Mm -hmm. If you don't like it, you know, best of luck to you, but go your separate ways. And I think that, um, People also try to uh, use form contracts on the internet, which God bless them. It, it's great to use mm-hmm. form contracts. They can be really, really helpful. It's a great idea that I can get 40 bucks. I can get this contract that looks legit. It has whereas and there to for and all these big sounding yeah, lawyer yeah, yeah. words. <laughs> but it's kind of like buying a non-tailored suit off the rack. Yeah, you're in a suit. And yeah, you look professional. And yeah, you know, people appreciate the attempt to look professional and be professional. But it's kind of like there's a there's a great picture of um, Nathan Feeler when he's in that oversized suit. Yeah, he's in mm-hmm. a suit. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to wear. But it looks right. so ridiculous and oversized because you're in this contract and it doesn't envision anything at all what you're saying. Right. And then we as lawyers will get those contracts all the time and we'll say, okay, what did the person tell you that the deal was? And they'll say, oh, we're splitting things 50-50. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. He's going to contribute this marketing budget. And then I'll say, well, the contract doesn't say that. And the only thing that matters yeah. is the contract. So it's important for people to understand that while form contracts and while, you know, it may may not make, you know, immediate financial sense to do it. It's just going to save you a lot of headaches and a lot of things, you know, if things were to go wrong. It's like nobody wants to pay Mm -hmm. for insurance, but God, you're so thankful when you when something happens and you have it. And when you do have that contract um, there and available, it's 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 super, super important. So when do you think it is an appropriate time for somebody, maybe, you know, a um, a band or I mean, I, I feel like there's so many different angles. You can look at this because you work with different departments, such as like NFL. And mm-hmm. um, but I guess for the 
for the overall look, when would be the best way of time to actually seek out a lawyer um, in entertainment? You know, uh, when they're about to release their first song, or you know, and somebody's looking to go play in a professional uh, level in college. Mm-hmm. You know, it. I know it's a it's a very you know broad question, but mm-hmm. you know, well, the the best time obviously is whenever you're presented with your first contract, right? Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times you'll have people like in my history we quote unquote signed to a record label with a handshake deal. Right. So there was no paperwork. There was no nothing. And he did it and he really helped us out and he put out our music and we did work in press. But you know, when it comes time to enforce things, we just, we, all we have is text messages and emails and then you got to hire some lawyer to figure out if there's a contract or not. So whenever you get your first contract is good in the, in your band example, um, if you're popular enough or if you're like a solo artist that is trying to get a band, um, you know, I think the first time you form the band, like it could be good to hire to get a band agreement. I understand that doesn't make sense. People, you know, when you're not making money, when you're not playing shows, when you're not doing things. Um, so I think the easiest time is when you get presented with your first contract. The second easiest time is, you know, if you're taking it seriously and you're trying to be in the music business and not just trying to be in music, you know, before you even get started starting a band and starting a business is just like starting any other business. Right. So the example that, um, we often use is, is like starting a band is kind of starting a restaurant, right? Like your music is the food. The food is what's going to get people in the door. The food, the food is what's going to get all the praise, but then you need other stuff around it. So how are people going to eat the food? You're going to need chairs. You're going to need tables. Um, so you're going to want to make sure that if the band is there and you have certain equipment, do you, does the band own that equipment? Does the individual player own that equipment? You figure that out because you need the equipment to make the music. You know, you're going to need a name. So you're going to want to protect that intellectual property because if I have to be on stage to say, hey, uh, we are um, speaker stereo soundtrack. But when you put it in on Instagram, the S, is, the first S is a dollar sign. The second S is, you know, a capital and you just have to do all this way. Well, that doesn't help you because then your fans can't find you on the internet, which is a super thing. So getting intellectual property protection is important. Um, so there's no one right time when people should hire an attorney. It's all about their like personal preferences and the amount of risks they're willing to think, you know, withstand. I think if you do everything right from the beginning, your risk factor is very, very low. But I understand that entertainment lawyers are expensive and it's not always like, there's not as much tangible immediate benefit as like, you know, I run a, I run a YouTube marketing campaign. I can see the views and I can see that. And hiring an entertainment lawyer can sometimes be like, well, it's not so much that what did happen. It, it's more what didn't happen. So mm-hmm. it's often hard to see that tangible benefit up front. But I think like, you know, just like if you were starting any other business, if you're, you yeah. know, you're hiring a lawyer to make sure all the paperwork's right, bands should start LLCs. I know that's crazy, but you know, for tax mm-hmm. purposes and everything else, you should, you know, start an LLC, be wary of services and make sure you're getting, like I said, kind of with the form contracts, they're great and they're helpful and they're useful, but they're not tailored to you specifically. Um, mm-hmm. They're usually forms, they're usually there. So any other service you use, just make sure that you're reading it. And if you don't understand it, take a lawyer to, to understand it. And maybe they, he or she can help fill in some of the gaps that the service may have left. There's a lot of times where people will hire a service um, that really isn't, that's really more automated and cookie cutter. And then they mm-hmm. think they're getting more than what's actually in the cookie cutter box. And they're all kind of surprised when they run into issues. Um, so I think a very simple answer to your question, best time is right before you get going. So that way yeah. everybody knows the rules of the game. 
everybody knows that everything's protected and everybody knows, you know, all right, so when the money does come in, here's how we're splitting it. All right. If, you know, in my experience, like, because I was the drummer as the band, I took on a lot of the like managerial stuff. I would mm-hmm. and even like the booking act stuff. So I would book us shows. I would make sure our social media pages are great. I would schedule posts because I wasn't the one writing the material, but our understanding was like, all right, well I'm busting my hump on the internet DMing, you know, house venues across the country to try to get us, you know, a three day weekend tour over Memorial Day yeah. weekend. Um, you got to be writing kick butt songs. So when I'm doing that, I expect you to be writing. And when you have a contract and you have all those responsibilities laid out on paper of who does what, again, it hopefully prevents less animosity because people are more willing to uh, be accommodating when they know what they're supposed to do. It's just kind of like when you get hired as a job, when you start getting additional tasks that you didn't really agree to or you're not getting fully compensated for, people start to get angry and that's how discord happens. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like some of that too is a little bit of just kind of grounding yourself and figuring out who's going to be doing the individual jobs because in the beginning you're just kind of doing this stuff because you enjoy doing it you want to you know you want to contribute to the success of your brand um you know you you're just doing because you enjoy doing it you know so you don't really look at it as i should be putting this down on pen and paper you know this is just me doing this and this is him doing that you know but the other side of it is you know, what if it comes down to where, you know, you blow up on, you know, TikTok or Spotify or whatever. And now the label or the agent or the manager that is not representing you wants to know who's doing what. And you're like, well, I do this sometimes. And it's like, well, you might as well just get it out of the way now, you know, just squash the bug. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that, as you said, success could happen so rapidly and so quickly in this world, you know, We have hit songs like, you know, if you look at the history of the music industry and hit songs take time and develop it or well marketed and literally all it takes now to make a hit song is, you know, do I have a good 15 seconds of it? If I have a good 15 Mm -hmm. second clip with either like a lyrics that makes sense or music that fits a certain theme, it takes one dancer to make a dance to it. And then all of a sudden rocking up the charts. And again, you know, there's a lot of horror stories that have kind of come out of the TikTok generation of like, this person had all this success. They moved a little bit too quickly or they didn't have preparations beforehand. And they go, you know, from playing thousand cap venues back to playing 50 cap venues, you know, within a year or two, because they didn't have enough, like a formula for sustained success. And everybody was just like, let's get in, let's get on this trend. Let's make our money and get out. Um, and part of that is the lack of artist development that mm-hmm. we've been seeing labels invest in. It's a, yeah. like I said, it's the, it's the music business, keyword on business. Right. Yep. So if a label can get the same amount of return on their investment without paying the usual cost in artist development, getting them with songwriters, getting them with top producers, getting them in top of line studios. Um, I think there's a TikTok artist named Biba Doobie who recorded her song in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. you know no studio time no production no nothing and she's doing well because she got a team around her to started to plan out things afterwards and you know after you get your first hit how do you get your second hit and if you wait a little bit too long and you're out of the the cultural lexicon if you're out of the you know the topic of the day it's hard to get back in that conversation um i think fetty wap like you know even before tiktok um you know profited a lot off social media and then 
you know, there were certain things that he wasn't moving correctly on. He didn't, you know, fully understand the business aspect of it. And I think, as I said, like, if you want to be part of the music business, you got to think of yourself as like a CEO. So you need to have mm-hmm. like, a, like, you don't have to know everything. And of course, every CEO has to delegate, you know, your manager is going to do the day to day of figuring out like, all right, let me make sure that the M&Ms like actually show up in this venue. Let me make sure that this thing is there and handle the day to day. But if you as an artist and a band member don't know a little bit about everything that's going on, and you let just people kind of run without any supervision, that's how companies fail. So yeah. for bands, for artists, you have to be the CEO. You got to know a little bit about everything. Um, everybody should read Donald Passman's book, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. It's kind of like the music industry bible. I'm very surprised when people say they've like never read of it or never heard of it or never read it. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure the last one of the previous guests we had on um, – talked about that book mm-hmm. um yeah because he is uh the manager for uh, under oath um mm-hmm. and the Aaron gillespie line. what a guy one of the better drummers yeah. out there him and ringo yeah. star the best two vocalist drummers ever know to man yeah, heck yeah man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, i'm pretty sure he talked about that book too so i might have to check that book out uh i have uh, a book from a long time ago um it was like how to how to make it in the music business, but it was it's a real old book, uh, and maybe it's still relevant, maybe not. But you know, um, it's got one. Of, it's like the cover is like a a guitar, and I I don't know, but it, I read it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I like to check that one out. So. Yeah, I, I think just that book is what I'm saying. It's like you know, when I was first starting off, I had to realize like I think one of the prime examples was like we would meet people in the basements, and they knew about what Bandcamp was. And they mm-hmm. knew about this and they knew about that. And then we had a friend who, you know, didn't really know too much. And she goes, oh, well, my cousin has a band and he's on iTunes. That must mean he's really big. I was like, and I had to tell her, I was like, no, I am also yeah. on iTunes. I pay DistroKid 20 bucks a month to, you know, right. put my music on there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you kind of have to think to yourself, like, and that was the first thing. It's like, all right, well, how do I study this? Like, what is our market? Like, who are we playing towards in the emo bands? It's you know, the four fans of thing is super important. So, you know, if yep. people like certain bands, like I looked at them and I looked and see what their marketing things were, like what type of lyrical themes were in there. And I would try to, you know, <laughs> sell out our band a little bit. I would make, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just the drummer. So they never really took me terribly seriously. But I yeah, was like, yeah. <laughs> all right, we got to, you know, let's sing it. I was like, I would try to give them like pointers. I'd be like, hey, let's write a song about this. Let's write a song about that. Let's write a song about this and try to give them there, you know, to try to help commercialize it a little bit. And unfortunately, like that is the role of the agent and the manager and the lawyer and the booking and the booking agent is like, all right, your songs are great. And oftentimes like, you know, we don't terribly know what we're doing to think, but we know what sells. So (sighs) when they do make those types of recommendations, nine times out of 10 is to help increase it. Cause you know, except for a few people in the industry, they get paid by the hour, get paid by the project everybody's working off a percentage. So everybody's yeah. looking to make sure that, you know, having, <laughs> having 50% of great, having 50% is great, but 50% of zero is still zero. Right. Right. So right. for an artist, like, and a manager and learning about this stuff, like learning about what works, learning about how you make your money, you know, whether that be through publishing royalties, signing up for ASCAP or BMI, um, making mm-hmm. sure that you're publishing companies, right. Making sure that you're getting those royalties, understanding that, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of times, because our firm has been so around, we deal with a lot of legacy artists and they go, well, I saw someone uploaded my song and it has a thousand views on YouTube. Well, 
back in my day, I know a thousand record sales equaled this amount of dollars for me. Where is my cash? Mm. And you unfortunately have to tell them, hey, uh, you get one intestinal percentage for a Spotify play. So just because you got a thousand plays is there. Like, you know, the easiest example I always have is about a million streams equals about $3,000. Now, if you're in a band, you're splitting that down four or five ways. That's even less. So how do you turn streaming into like other revenues? How do you expand it to other entertainment industries to get there? Like, mm-hmm. you know, bands will still make appearances on TV shows. Bands will start their own podcasts um, and they'll have other avenues of ways to make money. You know, merchandising is huge. You know, merchandise has gone from, you know, the simple T-shirt to like whole fashion lines or yeah. out there things like, you know, I saw some rapper was giving out stress balls. And I'm oh, like, that's cool. And I was like, stress balls. Like that's that's I've never seen a band logo on that before. Um, yeah. I remember, you know, again, when we were younger, we did a lot of DIY things. So I saw that, you know, and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this. Uh, but yeah. we saw that a lot of people would smoke. Uh, we were like, why is nobody here in this dingy basement? Oh, they're all yeah. in the backyard smoking. And the yeah, common yeah, phrase yeah. in between sets like, hey, you got a light. So we decided that we're just going to get a bunch of lighters and we made a little yeah. design on paper. We used Mod Podge and like a, like a sealant yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we put our logo on lighters. And Dang. that <laughs> was, smart, uh, yeah. And that was kind of a thing that we did. We figured like, yeah. you know, the other thing that people don't often realize about merchandising is it acts as an advertisement for your group. If your merchandise mm-hmm. is real cool and people will wear that t-shirt or if it's real soft and people wear your hoodie everywhere, People mm-hmm. find out about the band through that. They'll be like, oh, that's a cool sweatshirt. What is that? Is that from like, you know, whatever? Is that from Macy's? No, yeah. it's actually from this band. I saw them here and here. You should go check them out. Uh, and at least for us with the lighter concept, we figured like it wasn't going to be something that was going to be easily thrown away, like a business card or whatever, just kind of crumbled up in somebody's pocket. You leave it in the mm-hmm. wash. It's there. The lighter is going to be put into place. So even if people don't smoke cigarettes, like, they'll still use it for candles. Candles are big now. I think, you know, I'm at my house right now and I think we're, we have seven candles to go through of various gifts (laughs) that my girlfriend and I have received. And yeah, we just thought that, you know, what's going to be a long lasting thing that's going to have a cheap point of purchase. So, you know, we would go to Walmart and we would get a seven pack of them for like, you know, five bucks. So the profit and like we would sell them for a dollar so the profit margin wasn't great, but we figured it's not so much just a way to break even or a way to make money. And you can kind of worry about that when you're a bit bigger. But as a, as a younger act, like everything you need to be doing is, is about creating a buzz any way you can, whether that be through a crazy video or, you know, just great music. Ultimately, like I said, like in the restaurant example, nobody's going to come to your restaurant if the music stinks or, or if the mm-hmm. food stinks. So if the music stinks, like that's what you should always be focusing on the most, like making the best product possible. But after that, it comes to other things. You know, it comes to your marketing, it comes to your advertising. It comes to the experience of your live show. You know, even if like, you know, you're still a smaller act, there are things you can do yourself. Like I have a, my best friend created his own lighting rig. So he was playing basements or smaller venues and he figured out how to code, um, a timed lighting rig. So like when he has his mm-hmm. in-ears and he has his backing track, the lighting will go there. So now, yeah, he spent a lot of time learning it and figuring it out. And that was some of the benefit that COVID had where he could take that time and he'd be locked away in, you know, his little office. And I would just see various flashing lights in silence. I thought something spooky was going on, but luckily yeah. it wasn't. And <laughs> he just did it himself because he realized and he understood that 
you know, lighting is a part of the experience. It seems so stupid. You know, why can't I just yeah. have a bright, well-lit room and just play really good music and people will like it? But the right, lighting right. just impacts an audience in a certain way. So, Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think that, you know, ultimately, when you don't have that big team behind you, there are, like like we've been talking about, the power of the internet. You can learn anything. You can read anything. Like, for people that want to know what a record contract looks like, um, <clears throat> Plenty of artists in this era have leaked their contracts. So you can go find, you know, a top major label recording artist and you could see line by line exactly what these major labels are signing. So if you want to know what a contract looks like, you can go there. If you want to know how to produce a song, there's like a client of ours. Uh, he's called Busy Work Beats. He teaches people how to make music. He teaches people how to do things on Ableton or FL Studio. And I'll teach you like how to get a certain pitch or how to sound like that. And there'll be tons of YouTube courses. So there's never been a greater opportunity to educate yourself either. I, people are people we run into are like, well, I don't know how to do this. Well, have you taken some time to to look into it and do that research? Um, yeah. And if you don't know how to do it and you don't want to do it, figure out like what's your budget for getting somebody to help you out. And I think that the other thing I want to say is that be wary of bad information. There's a lot of people that'll put themselves out there as as these experts, as these people that'll help people out, and we'll get told one thing, and then you go to somebody else, and they're like, that's not at all how it works. So yes, mm -hmm. while there's a great opportunity to learn elsewhere, just look at the credentials and the look at the experience of the people you're talking to and see if they know what they're talking about. Yeah. So kind of going back to TikTok, because uh, I know that's the one of the bigger platforms um, when it comes to releasing your music next to Spotify, um, Instagram Reels, that kind of thing. Um, can you explain the differences in royalties and how they are applicable to these platforms? Or if they're at all. Sure. So what we see generally now is like, and I'm not going to get into numbers, but what we see now is like every social media platform is starting to realize that if we don't start compensating the creators that draw people's eyeballs to it, it's kind of like a chicken of the egg argument. Could creators mm -hmm. get seen if, if YouTube wasn't there? Could YouTube exist if they didn't have creators? Companies, especially social media companies, start to realize like if we don't start to share some of our profits, and even then the shares aren't great, you know, we're going to lose these creators to competing platforms. YouTube has a competitor in Rumble. Uh, Twitch has a competitor to Microsoft. TikTok has a competitor in Triller. Um, so they're similar concepts, similar works. Yeah, the user interfaces are different. Um, but if we want to keep people on there, you know, creators will want to stay there for royalties and eyeballs. People like TikTok, people like YouTube, and the competitors are trying to poach top creators away. But the way that these should work is that, at least in YouTube's case, uh, YouTube has this thing called this YouTube partner program where again, kind of what I'm talking about, they're like, I have 5,000 views on my video. Why aren't I getting royalties from YouTube? Well, mm -hmm. YouTube can't possibly manage the administrative work that it would take to properly account for royalties for everybody that uploads a YouTube video. Um, mm -hmm. that's just not how their platform works. So they set a certain number, whether it be subscribers or views, and then you can participate in the royalty structure based off that. And at least in YouTube's case, that royalty will come off the advertisements that are placed before your videos. So okay. the advertisers will put in money to YouTube to run an ad. And then YouTube will share in those profits with you, depending on how many views you get on your video or how many subscribers you have. So that's why every person, you know, say like and subscribe. It doesn't only help the visibility, it helps the royalty structure. So the way that those royalties work, as opposed to in the music world, like you're going to get your publishing royalties, you're going to get your master's royalties from sound exchange. Um, and like where certain collection societies go that YouTube and all, they kind of handle it in house. 
whereas BMI and ASCAP technically collect royalties for everybody that signs up and gets the music plays and properly registers them. That's always a big issue. People think, you know, they've registered a song and they really haven't. Um, but it's a totally different revenue stream. It doesn't come from the song itself or the or the written piece of the song that's embedded in the video. It comes from the video. So that's a whole different angle. So, you know, we'll see people do behind the scenes videos. And sometimes if you have enough subscribers, if you have enough videos, like songs, like that video will make you more in royalties than the song itself. So the mm. way that these royalties work is that it's all done within that platform. So they're not counting views from other platforms and they're not kind of combining it all together just like an ASCAP or BMI would, you know, where your streams from Spotify and Apple Music and everything goes into there. Um, it all comes directly from the platform. So you have to be really active on that platform. And if you think that, you know, YouTubing is the way to go, it's there, which is always kind of surprising to me when I see people go, oh, well, I don't I don't have a YouTube. And I, I'm just on Spotify or Apple Music. And I'm like, YouTube statistically is the number one spot where people discover music. Uh, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Um, it's not just music videos either. It's lyrical videos, it's visualizers. So if you have a hit, if you're putting out a single as an artist, you need to have at least like three videos. You need to have a visualizer, which is usually just like a moving graphic and just the song playing in the background, kind of like what you and I probably experienced with the old versions of iTunes and the Windows Media Player where they yeah, have different yeah, yeah. things like as you would the, play it. The, or Pipe Dreams on uh, Windows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you need one of those. Saver. <laughs> You need one of those, you need a lyric video, and then if you can afford it, a music video. And I think our music video that we put out, it cost us, you know, $1,000 to make. Um, you know, we hired people that were in a film program at Princeton University. So we did that there too. So the other thing is that like, there the, the cost of entry is so much lower than it ever has been. So people are always trying to learn. iPhones have great cameras. We, we filmed, we, <laughs> so there's just a funny music career thing. Um, so I'm paying all this money for a video. We get the house, we get it set up and it's taking hours upon hours and all the equipment they rented, all this high end equipment, mm -hmm. crapped the bed. And we ended up <laughs> filming our music video. It was a time-lapse video. Yeah. So I sat on a couch for like an hour, just totally motionless. Um, oh my god yeah, my, yeah I, I think my, i like twitched uh, AD, a little bit yeah my adhd would not like that at all <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing that and like they're just filming off an iphone and i'm like oh my god this is gonna come out so terrible this was like our last like thousand dollars we we sent everything away from the band phone for this this is like our first big single um yeah. oh my god it's gonna be awful and the video ended up coming out great so what i mean to say is that like you know you can still make professional looking videos with lesser people. Like the other angle is that um, if you are going to do that, you got to make sure it looks good. I've seen some bad videos out there and just like anything, kind of that business thing, like in the food presentation example, right? Like mm -hmm. if it looks like slop and it looks like throw up, people aren't going to eat it no matter how good it tastes. Um, right, right. So if you don't have like, a good quality video itself, which again, you don't have to spend a ton of money on it. You just got to find the right people to do it, whether that be people at your school, at a school's film program. There's plenty of colleges across the country that have solid film programs that will let students rent cameras. So you'll have professional equipment, um, professional editing software, stuff like that. And these students are learning hard. And while they are students, like they're there. So like all of our albums, whenever I played, were recorded by students at Drexel University. 
So we would get mm-hmm. to like a top flight studio. We would go there. We would record. And yeah, they're students. So it's not like the same level as like a, a Grammy winning mixer and engineer. But the recordings we had were always good. We're always professional. Um, so doing that is there. And I know we kind of got to off topic from the royalties questions a little bit. But yeah. this is more about increasing royalties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you have a video that doesn't look good or a video with the sound, it's kind of like wonky. It's all like buzzing in your headphones. Um mm-hmm it's not going to get views. So the easiest way to ensure increasing your royalties is to create captivating high quality content and then developing a relationship with your audience. Um, You know, everybody has loyalty to certain brands, to certain bands. And if you're not doing enough as an artist to develop that, like, you know, people are like, Oh, well, why do I have to post on social media? Why do I have to say like, Hey guys, like, and subscribe at the beginning of my videos. Because you have to build a relationship with your audience. You have the audience to like claim you as their own, to claim you as an extension of themselves. You know, I identify I identify myself by what music I listen to, what movies I watch. And if people don't see themselves in you or see like what they want to be in you, then you're not gonna get an increase in royalties. You know, you can't just make a funny thing or, you know, <laughs> I remember one band we knew would do like jackass style videos where they would hit each other you know in areas where you shouldn't be hit and i'm like yeah that's that's great but i can get that one way to do it yeah i can get that in a better higher quality you know by watching that so you're not developing a relationship so you know doing things like giveaways or other things like that and to draw people back into your social channels um is a big deal uh and i know it seems stupid at first to do giveaways when you only have a hundred or so followers or whatever but you know, it's just stuff like that. It all, it all spreads. It all spreads. You know, a friend tells a friend who tells a friend who tells an acquaintance who tells a stranger who wears a t-shirt and that's how you grow. Heck yeah. So, um, so I I, just trying to kind of restructure the question a little bit that the differences in the actual royalties though, there's like mechanical, there's performance, can you actually uh, specify like specifically what is what? Because uh, I know there's a lot of confusion on uh, some of these types of royalties mm-hmm. um, as it relates to like listening on Spotify versus listening onto the radio or whatever or performance. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. So performance royalties come from any time your music is played. So that's through like non-linear thing. Or I'm sorry, that comes through Spotify. That comes through radio. And there's difference between things that you actually pick and that royalty rate versus Mm -hmm. things that are actually there so you get a little bit more money when people um play your music on spotify is when it's just kind of randomly streamed on pandora because it's more of an active selection than whereas pandora it always gets there so those are the things you get public performance royalties every time your song is performed in the public so the other example is that ascap and bmi have been doing a great job of going to places where um, music is played and publicly performed, but royalties aren't being accounted. Those are often mm. your coffee shops and your bars and restaurants. So that's where public performance royalties come from. In the case of what I'm saying is like, we see a lot of bars and people don't know this. People think that if I have a personal Spotify account and I just hook it up to the aux cord at whatever, um, then that's fine. And I'm good to go. Cause I paid for Spotify for the access that that's not necessarily the case. Bars and restaurants have to get, a specific type of license from ASCAP and BMI. It's called a blanket license because they have to pay a different rate just because of the sheer amount of people that hear it. So mm. the royalty rate for just a single play on Spotify from a personal account is different than that of a larger place. Uh, mechanical royalties are set by um, the copyright board. 
and they are set at a certain number, things like 0.009. Um, and that comes from any time that, you know, your song is used. So mechanical royalties, and that's what you need to do if you want to profit off a cover. So there's a difference between like a remix or a sampling and a cover. Mechanical royalties often can come from people that are covering your song. So if they do that, so you can get a mechanical license. And as long as you're not changing um, the materials of the songs, you as an artist can profit off a cover. Like a lot of times what we'll see is like, well, I put out this cover and and I got a DMCA takedown. I was like, well, did you get a proper mechanical license? No, I didn't. All right, I said, well, all right, go to Harry Fox, go to one of these agencies and they'll get it for you. So mechanical mm-hmm. licenses are sort of like pr- public performance licenses. Um, and they allow people that are just sheerly playing the song. And that's a rate that's set by anybody that's doing the song themselves. So that comes more from like um, uh, the sound recording site, this type of thing. So there's a new thing that's been found called the Mechanical Licensing Collective. And that's different than BMI and ASCAP. So BMI and ASCAP, the way that the law considers, they consider a song of like two parts, right? So there's a written part, you know, if you were to transcribe the music into sheet music, uh, and then there's the master recording. The master recording is a sound recording. So like we both could be doing like Blink-182's Damn It, uh, and if I'm the writer of that song, I get different royalties. So if people Mm. do like eight different covers of it, I still should get royalties because I wrote the song itself. Whereas if I'm just doing a sound recording of it, I'm not getting ASCAP or BMI royalties because I didn't write it, but I still should be getting, you know, master streaming royalties from Sound Exchange or things like that. So yeah. the way I don't mean to interrupt you. The, so the master, if if you recorded at a studio mm-hmm. and the the contract that was negotiated was the sound engineer owns the master and then you own the rest of the song, is that an example, another example as to how they could get royalties based off of your master or. Yeah. So sometimes um, producers get royalties. Sound engineers just usually get paid uh, like a mm-hmm. flat rate based on the hours that they put in or just if they sometimes people just do it at a flat rate. They'll take the risk of like doing a little bit more extra work than it actually entails or sometimes they'll actually come out on top and what they mark up is like a five hour thing. They get done in three hours. So producers will usually get like a 2% royalty on the, on the sound recording itself. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they'll have a letter of direction for sound exchange that says, Hey, I own this portion of this. Please send me my royalties there. So yes, I think for every artist, they should be protecting their publishing royalties. That's the most popular. Um, And we see now that a lot of people are selling their catalogs. So when you see like a headline that Justin Bieber is selling his catalog, it's not so much that he's selling the sound recordings themselves. Um, you know, he's sell he's selling his part of the publishing. So publishing okay. can apply and you can get publishing money when people sample your music. So in that lucid dreams example, you know, sting gets hundred percent of the publishing because they took that, that hook from him kind of verbatim and he was in a strong negotiating power. Um, the other angle we see in your example about the difference in sound recording between the written music. I think the best example to explain this is Taylor Swift. So when Taylor Swift had her catalog of masters sold, not her publishing, big, mm-hmm. uh, big machine, uh, her old record label at the time sold all of the master rights that they had to Scooter Braun. And Taylor Swift was unhappy that Scooter was going to get uh, a portion of the royalties. So Taylor re-recorded all of her albums, which she has the right to do because of the fact that she wrote the songs. The masters are different. Her voice is different. The sound instrument is different. Um, but now 
Taylor can make money off the master and not just the written portion of the music like she did. Mm. I, I don't know the specifics of her deal, but it was there. So even though the songs are essentially the same, like if you were to put out, you know, Hey Steven by Taylor Swift, that's my favorite of hers. Uh, mm. You know, that written music is the same in Taylor's version and in the previous version, but now Taylor Swift can make money off the master itself. So when you're writing a song, you got to think of it as those two parts, like the sound recording and the, the publishing, the publishing pays the best and has the most chances for exploitation. Whereas the master could be done thousands of times by different people that have different rights to it in the electronic mm -hmm. world. You know, if you write a song and it gets remixed a thousand times, but only one of the remixes pops, well then your other remixes on the sound, on the, on the, on the master side don't get paid as well because they didn't contribute to that master recording. So whenever you're thinking about mm -hmm. this music, and for most artists, they're like, well, I wrote it and I put it out there. I own the I own the master and do that. And the law considers, you know, if you're without an agreement, if you did contribute an original idea to the work, then you're considered an author of it, at least under copyright law. So mm -hmm. being able to do that and have those different streams of income are important. So, yeah, I, I think the basic type of royalties you as an artist should be concerned about your mechanicals which are through the Mechanical Licensing Collective, which is a different organization than ASCAP, BMI, or SoundExchange, your master royalties, which come through SoundExchange, uh, and then your publishing and writing, which are two separate sides of the pie, but they're both administered by uh, BMI and ASCAP. And again, people think that, you know, if I get 5,000 streams, I should be doing royalties. Unfortunately, the, the royalty rates are so, so low that you're not really seeing real money off of that. So that's what I'm saying. You know, everybody's magic word is publishing. And that's because it applies in pretty much every scenario, whether you're releasing a song on the radio, whether you're sampling it, whether you're having a sync license for it to attach it to a commercial or a film, all the mm -hmm. publishing rights have to be cleared, whereas the master can be any different. So like um, the other example is like Hurt, uh, which is a Nine Inch Nails song. Everybody loves the Johnny Cash version of it, not so much the right. Nine Inch Nails of it. So because right. Nine Inch Nails likely as a publishing, and I don't know this for a fact or not, I don't know if they sold it recently or whatever, but because Nine Inch Nails is the publishing of that, even though Johnny Cash's version is the one that everybody loves and gets played, they're still making money off of it. So still right. writing songs um, is the best way, is the best way to ensure royalties. So if you're putting out covers a lot, yeah, you can make a little bit of money off it. And even you can do parody songs and you can make money like Weird Al. And and that's mm -hmm. it was actually a big issue of the music industry for a long time. A lot of publishers were a little bit upset uh, that you know, Weird Al was making this money essentially off their songs and they weren't really getting yeah. a piece of it because yeah. the law does consider it a bit different, even though, you know, it's a, it's a good example. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, writing songs is, is the only way to do it because the streaming royalty rates are so low, whereas it's yeah. like the public performance royalties, at least under the law being considered. And I believe the royalty board just increased the amount of, um, of royalties oh, that nice. people can receive as well. So we're slowly coming okay. to an area where, um, people are growing and there's also different, you know, new uh, performing rights organizations that are beyond ASCAP and BMI that are doing a little bit harder to advocate. Like we've dealt with a few times where, you know, the interesting thing about, about this is that when you're dealing with an ASCAP or a BMI or something like that, if you're a live venue or you're a small coffee shop and you don't have this proper license, then you can't play certain music or you're going to get sued. So, mm these performing rights organizations almost act like a union in a certain way where they advocate for the rights of all the artists, not just the big guys, but the little guys too. So if I'm a bar or restaurant and I'm illegally playing music 
and I don't buy this ASCAP or BMI royalty, then I'm I'm risking that. And business owners kind of hate it because they're like, well, again, kind of like what I've said about the lime wire generation is like we expect things to be played for free, but mm-hmm. at the same time, these artists are putting in hard work. They're putting in their time, money, and effort to do it. And unfortunately, while we have kind of devalued the amount of actual written and recorded music these days, it's an important thing to protect. And you know, getting signed up for the Mechanical Licensing Collective, Sound Exchange, ASCAP or BMI, uh, or even CSAC, mm-hmm. but that's a little bit harder. Um, you know, ASCAP or BMI are the ones that you know we typically see getting signed up for all these things. And even if you're not making a ton of money now, what we're saying is that yeah. you got to set yourself up for success. Which ones are, uh, which one's better? Uh, or is there really no better? It's just a preference. Uh, just a preference. It's just if you, whether, okay. whether you like it, they're not going to pay you different rates. Um, okay. So it's, you know, ASCAP and BMI now kind of have like a joint registry uh, called Songview, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So they're, they are working yep. together. So like when you're working for a sample clearance or license clearance, or you want to see like, sometimes we'll, we'll help people sell their catalogs as well. You know, a lot of legacy artists. Um, so you want to see like their whole list and if it's not registered, how do we get it registered? But yeah, there's no real difference between BMI or ASCAP, at least in my view, people like people may tell you different. Um, but there is like no one better organization. Okay. That's good to know. Um, in the case of an entertainment lawyer, could they also be the manager of the band or, you know, whatever? Yeah, we've seen that happen before. Um, you know, in our in our firm's history, he Lloyd has done it once uh, with Grover, um, and okay. that's just because it's there. So yes, you can go on a on a roll too. But kind of what happens is, in certain instances, there's different interests, right? So if you're a lawyer, your interest is in protecting the artist legally, and you know lawyers trade in time. Um, we charge hourly rates or in certain interests or in certain instances, they'll work on contingency, like a manager. Um, we don't do that. We charge by the hour, <clears throat> but when you're managing an artist, as I'm sure you've experienced, it's a ton of work. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a blending of babysitting and, and negotiating and marketing and yeah. all these different things. So if you're doing that, they sort of become each artist becomes a full-time job unto itself. So when you're doing that, you really have to like do time management. So it's not unheard of. Um, and sometimes in a way, like if you do it right, like you may save yourself on legal fees a little bit if you're an artist. Um, mm-hmm. But again, you know, for every artist that does that, you have to worry about their time being split between different things or different people. Whereas like when you have a manager just doing management, you know that there and you're focusing on that world. So having different yeah. roles and different separate things allows people to do that because if your manager is also your lawyer, your lawyer may have to go do something else while they're managing. And there are plenty of people that have managers with several different clients. So I'm not saying that anybody should hire a manager or they should only expect that manager to work on them solely. It's just the idea that, you know, you have different interests when you're a manager versus when you're a lawyer. So it affects your perception in each way. And it takes a very yeah. strong person to be able to separate those interests, recognize those interests. You know, if you're working for a percentage and that's all you're really getting, well, then you have a strong incentive to accept the deal no matter what, you know, because you need to get paid. If you don't accept this deal, you're not getting paid. So if there's a few things that let slide, you know, you're here there. But if you're a lawyer just working by the hour, um, you know, you're not as concerned because hopefully your interest isn't getting paid because everybody's got to feed their families, right? So 
being able to have that different aspect of it and when you're not just working on contingency, at least in my view. I, I'm not disparaging any lawyers that do it this other way, but um, you know, working off the percentage offers some different different incentives. And again, people can recognize mm-hmm. that and work against it yeah. and make sure that they are protecting their clients. There are plenty of lawyers I know that do it that way and they work off a percentage, but there is that incentive at the end of the day that like if this deal does not close, I do not get paid. And I'm lucky enough that, you know, we're at a firm where, you know, we're not so desperate that we need to do that. But when you're a manager and that your manager is also your lawyer and they're only working off a contingency, um, well, I don't care that this death metal band is, is going to go on this Hello Kitty commercial and it might rue their image because they're going to pay $10,000. Yeah. I'm going to get 1500 off it and I can pay my rent and my lights this month. So yeah. <laughs> there's, there's different incentives, but I, but I will say that yes, people in Philadelphia, I know of lawyers that do that in New York and LA and in Nashville mm-hmm. and Atlanta, you know, I know lawyers that have their own record labels, um, mm. you know, and it's a good thing and a good angle. It's just, you got to think about like when you're dealing in this business, everybody sort of has an angle no matter what, unfortunately, there are people mm-hmm. that do good things and they do good work and they do things that probably aren't in their angle, but everybody's either trying to get famous or make some money. So whenever you're meeting with somebody, you got to think, well, what's in it for them? If you have a, you know, for the acts that you manage, you're managing them because you enjoy their music. And ultimately, like, you believe that they're going to be worth your time, effort and energy. So your angle in that is like, yeah, you're helping them, but you're also like, going to get a percentage of what they make, which is important. And that's why, you know, there's that too. So other people may just like, if I'm starting a record label, some people do what I call a spray and pray approach where they sign anybody and everybody and they're not going to put a time into artist development, but they'll do some of the managerial stuff and, you know, make sure the music gets out there and all they need yeah. is one or two of them to pop. Um, there are other people that are just like putting all their eggs in one basket and their angle is that they get attached and they get signed. And, you know, even when you're in the outskirts of anything, you got to worry about people getting poached. Uh, loyalty yeah. is, in any entertain, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, like we do different types of entertainment work, and the the one the one commonality I see across film, TV, TikTok, music, football, uh, loyalty is in short supply. Um, mm. When the money starts coming in, when people start getting this, when people start seeing big names or you know other people that they're there, people kind of tend to forget who got them there. So you know, yeah. if you have an artist and they get make it big time. They'll tell their manager, their agent, uh, hey, uh, thanks for everything you did, but I didn't really need you. You were just kind of along for the ride and you were helping me out. Anybody could have done that because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the greatest thing in the world. And, yeah. you know, if nothing happened for me, it, it, you know, but then when nothing happens for them, it's never their fault. It's the manager's yeah. fault. It's the agent's fault. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm kind of mean to say by that is like when you do have a manager and an entertainment lawyer as an entertainment lawyer yourself, just from a pure business perspective, you know, you can get fired just like an agent or a manager could, you know, when you yeah. sign with a, when you sign a representation agreement with a lawyer, you're not signing them for one, two, three, four, five years, like a manager, there's no sunset clause that a, that mm-hmm. a manager, that a manager has where they can get a certain percentage of earnings for all the work that they put in when they weren't getting paid, you know, now that things are hitting, but you can get fired at any time. So as a lawyer, you really have to make sure that you're always looking out for your client's best interest. And while I have seen people done it, 
And, you know, luckily for me, everything I've, I've heard from, from Lloyd and his relationship with Grover is that Lloyd was able to sort of separate the two things. And, you know, yeah, he was like making sure that the lighting was right as the tour manager. Um, but he was also making sure that the contracts were right behind the scene. And that's because he developed a, a close personal relationship with Grover and he cared about as, as a person, as an individual. And he's mm-hmm. one of the, you know, the people in this industry that I've seen that like genuinely cares about the people he works with. They're not just names or numbers or, or anything like that. Like everybody has sort of a right to chase their dream. And while it may not work out for everybody, um, all we can do as attorneys and, and, you know, is to help guide people and give proper advice. And as a manager, all you can do is like, make sure that all the ducks in a row are as best as possible. You pester that artist with like, Hey, like we got to get to this studio time. Um, Hey, we got to get to this gig. Hey, I really need you to post this video. And sometimes the artist will be like, Oh man, I cannot do another TikTok video. I cannot do it. But you're like, this is what you are as a manager. It's like, you're playing your role. Everybody has a role to play. And when you start to blend the roles and you start to blend the lanes, different competing interests and conflicting interests come in there and, it, and it's not always the best serve. So, I mean, again, I, I'm not trying to disparage anybody that does it. It's just my personal view on the subject. Sure. So I'll ask uh, one more question and we'll uh, kind of um, end the podcast um, running a little later than usual, but I love the conversation and so much good information. Good. I hope so your listeners have to, like it too. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to have you back on again, you know, get, get more information out there. Um <laughs> What are some of the costs that are associated with getting a lawyer for something like, uh, you know, just building a contract? Sure. So some of the costs that are associated with lawyer, um, it depends on what type of doing. If you're trying to start from scratch in a business, um, I'll talk about sort of the way that we do it generally. Um, So what we'll do is that we'll take what's called a retainer. Um, A retainer is an upfront payment. And the way we do it, at least, is that we work off it based on our hourly rates. So if you want me to draft an agreement between you and your four band members, you come to us and at least the way we do it, we'll sit down with you for an hour free charge. Um, if we have interest, you know, again, we trade in time, so we don't take everybody that, that gives us a call. Um, but we'll sit down with you an hour and we'll kind of talk to you and we'll figure out. And it's almost like a, not quite a trial, but it's pretty, it's pretty close. We just sort of pepper yeah. the people with questions. We're like, all right, well, do you do this? Do you do that? And it sounds so yeah. simple and so stupid, but, um, we have to do that. So then we figure that out and then we create a priority list of like, all right, here are like the five or six legal things you think we need. We Lloyd sort of sits down and figures out like, all right, here's how much time I think I need to spend on this. Steven's the younger guy. So I'll give a lot of the like grunt work to him to save the clients some money. Cause my hourly rate is less than his just because of the experience he has, you know, doing this for like 60 some years. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then we'll sit down and they'll pay the retainer. And then we'll work off it based on our hourly rates. So that thing could be super small, depending if it's just like a single contract that they want us to do. But if they want us to get, you know, get the LLC made, get the band agreement done, make sure the operating for the operating agreement for the LLC is right, kind of laying out who is supposed to do what for this business. If they need to file a trademark to make sure that the band name is protected. If you're a hip hop producer and you want to make sure your sound uh, tag is protected, then that's a different cost in itself. So the cost, depending on the attorney, could be there. There's also pro bono services that are available if you can't quite afford one yet and you do get presented with a contract. And they'll nine times out of 10, they'll be like good enough attorneys to be able to handle that. So you pro bono means free. Um, mm-hmm. So some of the costs associated with it, it could be a couple thousand dollars for like a really good one. And again, kind of like, you know, for the cheaper end, I've seen people charge, you know, 
this isn't our rate, just to be clear. I'm just throwing an example, like hundred bucks yeah. an hour. Um, and if you get like a really good and experienced attorney, while that hourly rate may seem high, um, that the amount of time that it takes them to do something is compared to somebody with a cheaper rate, it may not work out totally. Right. So like mm. if I'm paying the whatever hundred dollar an hour guy and it takes him to six hours, what a more experienced attorney could do in a half hour, the cost, sure, yeah. the cost is different. So right. while it may seem high, you're paying for that experience and that lesser time and that lesser amount of time it's done. Um, some entertainment attorneys will do it off a percent uh, off a blended model where you get paid by the hour, but you also get a percentage if the deal closes. So you're okay. doing that. Some attorneys I've seen, they do it off of a subscription model. So you pay like a monthly subscription and you can get them for a certain amount of time. And then anything after that, you, st- you got to start paying. So mm-hmm. lawyers can charge in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, but I think if you're looking for a good attorney, it's just like investment in anything else. Like you could go like, kind of like the suit example I was talking about, you know, you go to off the rack thing, get something off the rack, not get it tailored and you'll look nice. You'll have a suit. It won't be totally fitted to what your needs are, but Mm -hmm. you'll still be wearing a suit or you can go up and get the high end, uh, you know, Gucci Prada, whatever suit. And it's going to cost you a thousand, a lot of money. And you're going to think like, well, this is just a suit what's the big deal for this but it gives off a certain reputation a certain appeal that you wouldn't normally otherwise get so you know generally if you want a number figure um a semi-decent attorney will probably cost you like fifteen hundred dollars and i'm not saying that's what we charge um Mm -hmm. but just generally like to get things going to get like a a good amount of the stuff need going like a fifteen hundred dollar retainer i would i would think is the bare minimum and again there are pro bono services that you can go to um, here in Philadelphia, we have a great organization called the Philadelphia Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Um, there are certain national organizations that work that, and um, they'll hire attorneys that are experienced and they'll give back pro bono hours. Um, a lot of attorneys are expected to give a certain amount back just because lawyers do have to charge rates just because of the amount of costs that are associated with schooling and everything like that, and all the time and effort and energy that we've put into like learning our craft, like. You know, when I was in law school, I was doing 65 hour weeks, just studying and and learning and stuff like that. And I was paying a good amount of money. So, um, you know, that's unfortunately kind of like lawyers charge so high and and we're not supported by an insurance industry like the medical industry is. So, yeah, they can run expensive, but it's ultimately like, do you want to invest now and pay less now for the threat of like not having to pay more later? Or do you just want to like do it kind of? I'm just going to say this. I hope this is okay. Half-assed. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. I've said way worse on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if yeah. you were on the YouTube made for kids video section or not. You know no, no, I mean, no. So. <laughs> yeah, the fir- I think the first episode we did, I tried to keep it clean. So that way when I uploaded the podcast, I could mark like clean on there. And then like the second episode, my personality came out. I was like, well, there it is. Explicit from then on. <laughs> so, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, the cost the cost for entertainment attorneys really range based on the amount of yeah. experience and expertise and the stuff they've done on. So you can go anywhere. It's just like any sort of thing. You know, you can get a burger for a dollar. You can get a burger for thirty bucks. Um, at the end of the day, it is you know a lot of the similar things. It's just you know what else addition can it have there? Like what does the reputation say about going to that place? Um, but yeah, I think that you know as I said, if you like, there are like form contracts out of there. You just got to understand it's not really going to fit to what you're trying to do um, totally. 
And if you're buying a form contract and you tell people one thing and then the contract says something different and they take it to an attorney, it could kill the yeah. deal right off that. Like we've sure. had many an experience where that, like, well, I got presented this form recording contract and I'm like, uh, this contract's talking about eight tracks. Is your record label going to, you know, put out an eight track of your album of this dead format? And they're like, no, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't talk about eight tracks at all. I'm like, well, it wasn't great for you either way because you were only getting 20% of what the eight track was selling. So, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of times where, you know, presenting a bad contract or a form contract can kill a relationship because most people understand yeah. they've watched enough behind the music videos. They've watched enough like interviews with people like yourself where people talk about some of the horror stories with their contracts and that they didn't read it or they, you know, unfortunately just got like their friend's mom's family law attorney to read it over. Um, and the thing is like, yeah, you can read those things, but just having the knowledge of like what the industry is there. So for people that are aspiring entertainment attorneys, you know, one of the first things you need to do is, is learn what's going on in the industry, what deals are happening. Like, if you don't know that Justin Bieber just sold his catalog, or if you don't know that Taylor Swift is doing all her re-recording rights, like mm -hmm. then you're going to be behind. You can read contracts until the end of the word, until the end of the word. But what your clients most care about is those dollar signs. So yeah. knowing those, what those dollar signs are, like using your own experience of what deals you've seen come across the table, doing a bit of due diligence. You know, not everything's always publicly reported, so that's why it's important to. I think the day to remember five album lockup uh, contract example is a good one too. Oh yes, right? yes, yeah, and yeah. everybody thinks like, well, no, it's only for an album. I'm like, well, the rest of this paragraph says that they have four irrevocable options. Revocable means like you can't revoke it. Uh, right. There and then oh, and they're like, well, I get to keep my masters. And I was like, this line that says they own it in perpetuity. And they're yeah. that, and they're like, "Oh, God. perpetuity, yeah, that's like a, that's a, that's a studio." I'm like, "No, no, 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 it means no, 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 that's for life." <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think that it's important. Like, yeah, everybody's watched enough that, like, when that record label contract comes, most people know that they need to hire an attorney. But yeah, for everything else, like I said, it's it's all about just like any other business. You can spend a lot. You can spend a good amount now to prevent you from spending a lot later, or you can spend a little now and pray to God that you don't got to spend a lot later. And unfortunately, yeah. like the economics of it are such that not everybody like you're going to see people commit like blatant copyright infringement and they're going to be like, well, why aren't they getting this? And because unfortunately, they're too small enough for people to care. But when it starts to get yeah. bigger, it's going to be different. Like if Lucid Dreams only got 30 streams, I don't think Sting's going to come calling. But when it, goes, right. when it shoots to number one on Billboard, that's when Sting's going to be like, huh, you know, I, I wrote that song. Uh, for this old French movie that was filmed in New York called The Professional. I, 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 yeah. It sounds a lot like that. Did somebody sample that? And they're like, oh, no, actually, uh, I think he contacted us, but we didn't do it. And uh, now you get that. And now Sting has all the leverage in the world. So right, people right. kind of just move willy-nilly and just say, like, well, the money isn't coming in yet. Why, why do I care about this? Um, I have a good relationship with my manager. We don't have a contract. And then all of a sudden you see this lawsuit pop up. And then all this dirty laundry is getting aired out because a lot of these lawsuits can become public and all the pleadings are there and you have to yep. write it in such a way. So, you know, uh, and I'm talking, of course, about the the chance the rapper manager situation in which the manager had mm. to sue to get a percentage and everybody's mm -hmm. there and then you're getting called out in the lawsuit. So that manager is his rest of his business is going to be based off the fact that he helped bring chance rapper up. Um, but when the lawsuit response says that this manager was doing that or doing this or like, you know, there's another <laughs> there's another lawsuit example where uh, this is in the music world, but 
I believe it was a, a staffer at some film company and they put it out there that this staffer watched Netflix for 20, like, you know, for, if she was there for eight hours, she was had Netflix and friends on for seven hours. And in the lawsuit, it makes it seem like, you know, this person just didn't do their job and they were just eating popcorn and Netflix all day. And then the lawsuit says, no, I just kept it on for background noise because it was a show. I actually did my work. And then you don't know who to believe because, you know, people only read certain things and you can't always prevent lawsuits, but having the contracts out in advance, um, is super important and that's why i think it's important to you know take the time just like any business there's going to be startup costs one of the good important startup costs is to hire a lawyer and i understand that not everybody wants to do that right away um but it is such an important thing that you know and and granted i'm an entertainment lawyer so i think everybody should hire one but uh (laughs) at the same time like i remember the music days it's just like you're struggling to get by you know, mm-hmm. how do I split up this six pack of Paps Blue Ribbon between my four members? Who gets the extra yeah. Paps? Well, it's <laughs> got to be me because I was the one that was lugging the base cap down the basement. Well, no, I, I did it this time. Um, right, it right. can be difficult and seem so stupid, but just getting it done early will save you so much trouble down the line. And that's what lawyers do. They help protect you. They help advise you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all we are. All we are is advisors and we can help. But it's up to the artists to do that. There are plenty of great examples of artists getting advised or players getting advised one thing and they don't listen and they think that they know better and uh, they go a certain way and and it doesn't always work out. Uh, One last example I'll leave you with is um, one of my favorite um, uh, intellectual properties examples when it comes to a name. Um, There was a uh, R&B singer in the early 2000s named Bobby Valentino who in all of his Mm. hit songs, he would go, it's Bobby Valentino. And that's important because when I hear that song, I'm like, oh, that's Bobby Valentino. Yeah. What he didn't uh, realize, well, I guess he sort of realized, I don't remember the exact full details of the story, but Bobby Valentino uh, was already an artist in, in Britain and he had a record oh. deal and the record labels had told Bobby Valentino, hey, uh, we have a trademark for this and if you keep using the name, we're going to sue you. And yeah. willful infringement of, copy, of, of trademark um, carries with it a certain... Uh, damages thing so you know he was facing six seven figures for using this name now bobby valentino can't go back and change the lyrics to mrs officer or the recording song but he has to change his name now so now he goes by bobby v and if i search bobby valentino on the internet yeah i may still find that stuff but it's going to take me a minute to find a streaming and with yeah. you know the lower attention span of the day um you're not always going to take the full time if you can't find it in those first few clicks so had he heeded his lawyer's advice or had he like taken the thing seriously and made sure they had a name that made sense, not just like, well, I've already done this. I'm just going to kind of take my chances and do that. You know, maybe his career would have turned out a bit different. Um, yeah. So I think like, you know, when people pick a band name, they're like, well, I made this E a three and that way we're totally good to go. I'm like, that's not how the law works. Uh, yeah. You know, the law <laughs> is not like social media where it's like, as long as I don't have the exact same spelling, it's different. Like trademark, any you could be sued for anything that would create what's called a, a likelihood of confusion. So if a mm-hmm. consumer would be concerned about like whether this Bobby Valentino and this Little Wayne song was the guy from Britain or the guy from America, which could theoretically happen, you could sue over that. So if you are going to do things like parody T-shirts or things like that, you know, it's just as important to make sure that you have all the legal rights to it. Because the other angle is that you know, all these platforms have certain policies that say if you're if you're a repeat copyright infringer, 
you're going to lose everything. And yeah. you'll see, especially in the YouTube world, people get strike downs. Uh, sometimes they're not always valid, but at the same time, it's like all the hard work you put in and you're relying on this platform for all your views. They have all the mm-hmm. power over you when you do, when you do that stuff. And you know, all it takes is like one or two slip ups and here you go. You have to start from scratch. And again, with people's attention spans, they're not always going to be like, all right, well, I got to go find this band or this YouTuber and I got to put a zero for this. O and a dollar sign for this S and I got to have like three underscores. Um, and it's difficult. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, but, and it, a lot of times when I remember when we were starting our bands, we're like, Oh my God, that name's taken. This has like five yeah. words in it. What the, <laughs> what the hell? My favorite band's right. name is, uh, the world is a beautiful place and I am no longer, and afraid, I'm to no longer afraid to die. Yeah. That is perfect. <laughs> I it's love a long that name, but you know that yeah. nobody's going to get confused. Um, you know, whereas like if you're ACBC, I don't yeah. know if that works as well. Um, right, right. So I, I just think that like a lot of these initial startup things of like, you know, when you build a house that's not on a solid foundation, that house is likely to crumble. And it may not yeah. crumble in the light wind, but when the heavy gust comes, it all sort of falls apart. So having a lawyer is making sure that, you know, you're protected against the wind as best you can. They're ne- they, nobody can ever guarantee anything in this business. But yeah. you can do a lot of things to protect yourself early on and build your house on a solid and your business on a solid foundation um, to make it there. So that's what I'm thinking about, you know, for any aspiring upcoming artist that's listening to this podcast. Um, make sure your foundation is solid before you put yourself out there because you're going to put time, money and effort into a thing that ultimately crumble. You'll have a lot more regrets than if you just, you know, hired a lawyer from the outset. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen, for coming on. Um, I really appreciate all the information. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on again because there's, love to be there's back. so much. Very uh, fun. I, I, yeah, I agree. There's, I just, uh, I love the business side of things. Um, I was never dedicated enough to get into law school, um, but I love business well, side of music. You were asking me good questions about royalties. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is like super interesting for me. I know there's a lot of people who just don't understand the the law side of things and it just it's a lot to grasp, you know, Uh, there's so much that goes into it and it can be intimidating. So thank you for coming on and being able to break down some of this stuff for, for people. who. Thank you for having me. Really love the break the gate podcast. Uh, yeah, we broke down some barriers of people knowing about the business side of things. Like I said, if you're starting a business, why would you learn about the ins and out of it? Exactly. What it is. This is a music business. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, it was good talking to you. Great talking to you as well.